0: We'll be in verses 11 through 27 of this chapter this morning. We'll let you know, just in case you're wondering, that uh, over the next couple weeks, the the preachers who will be here will be continuing in Luke. Next week, uh, uh, Owen Neese, a friend from seminary and PhD student at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, will be preaching Uh, through the Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then the next Sunday, a guy named Tommy Middleton will be here, and uh, we'll be preaching on Easter. Uh, So, I'm thankful for their willingness to come and serve you through the Word. This morning we'll be considering, where do you stand with the King? That's the question Jesus is posing to us. Where do you stand, in what relationship? How do you stand before the King? Are you a servant, a faithful servant, as the text will talk about? Are you a nominal servant, or are you an enemy to the king? Last week, I'll remind you, if you were with us, we talked about praying with the end in view. As we get closer to Jerusalem, as to the crucifixion, with these, which these candles signify that we're coming very, very close. Jesus continues to teach on topics of discipleship. And I shared with you last week, these, these are topics that are central to Jesus and to, and to discipleship and relationship to the Father. We know that as Jesus nears the cross, his time is run, with the disciples is running out. And so he is teaching on those topics that are central. And as I've studied these texts, one of the things that I've noticed is that Jesus becomes more and more focused on matters. Uh, Jesus is always concerned with eternity. But it seems that the topics are more and more focused on eternity. Praying with the end in view was what we studied last week. In a sense, what we'll study this week is living with the end in view. You see, there are two options for all of us. Either we will be in heaven, we will dwell with God forever, or we will be in hell and we will be separated from God forever these are our options. This is where all of us will be. C.S. Lewis, I think he's hinting at this, says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. You catch that? Let me read that one more time. Love this quote, and I think it's so helpful. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. You see, when God's in second place, he's no longer God. He's a little g God, a God of our own making, a God of our own image. And then we are committing idolatry. Either God is God, either Christianity is true, and either we will be in heaven or hell or it, it, or not. It's false. And so, what we're considering this morning, where do you stand with the king, is of great importance. I want to remind you, before, before we continue, of something I said last week. As we're studying the Gospels, context is incredibly important. I have a picture, if Miss can access that. I was sharing with you last week when they originally wrote the scriptures on the manuscripts that there were no spaces, but what you see in your Bibles are these large gaps. They're divided by topics, and that's helpful in many ways. But one of the things it can say to us is that the topics are disconnected. And that's simply not true a lot of the times. Many times the topics are very connected, and I think this is just a, a helpful picture of, of showing this. This is an early one of the earliest manuscripts we have, a Greek manuscript, and you'll see are there any paragraph breakings there? Do you see any subject breakings? No, no. There are no spaces. This is how they wrote. They wanted to make uh, the best use of the paper of the Of it that they could. It was very expensive. And so they wrote things very close together. There are no breaks at all. Many times the letters are even difficult to make out. And this is one of the earliest manuscripts we have. And I think this reminds us that these topics are very integrated and very connected. And so as you're reading, even though you may skip down into another paragraph or another section, remember it has probably has something to do with the section above it. Context, when we're studying these Gospels, is very important. So as Jesus continues to Jerusalem, as these paragraph breaks, we'll remember that he is speaking to the things that often just happened, the things just above. Another important aspect of this text in Luke chapter 19 is that it has a lot of similarities to another parable. How many of you have heard of the parable of the talents? Right? Parable of the Talents. Now, how about the Parable of the Minas? (laughs) Anybody? That one's a little less familiar, right? You see, this parable in Luke has a lot of similarities to a, a parable in Matthew, the Parable of the Talents. But there are also some differences. I want to point out to you a few of the similarities and then some of the differences. First, in both parables, there is a man who distributes money to servants, money that's to be invested while he goes away. So a man is going to distribute money to servants and he expects that money to be invested while he's gone. Another similarity is that two servants double their investment. Two servants faithfully invest and they double what they were given. But another servant hides what he was given out of fear of the master. This happens in both parables. And then another one other similarity is that the unfaithful servant's talent is given to the one with the most, the one with the most. So there are a lot of similarities here, but then there are also some differences from the story in Matthew 25. First of all, the parable in Luke that we'll study this morning is clearly a study about a king, a parable about a king. But the story in Matthew says it's only about a man going on a journey. It doesn't indicate that it's a king or a nobleman or anything. It's just a man going on a journey. A second difference is that the king distributes minas instead of talents But they amount to different sums. So there are different sums of money in the stories. And the third difference is that Luke has other characters in the story. These characters being the enemies of the king. There are no enemies of the king mentioned in the parable in Matthew. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because some would say that because the parables are different, that Luke has taken his own uh, way of telling the story, that he's added some things, and he's just taken liberty. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, because many would say that if the gospel writers take liberty in this area, what other areas have they taken liberty in and added what they wanted to add? They were really not things that Jesus said, those gospel writers just said some things and inserted some things where they felt more needed to be said. And I want to correct and hopefully help you in this. You see, many times gospel writers will par- tell a parallel story, a story that Jesus told that we'll also see in another gospel, but there are often these small differences and then sometimes large differences. What does this mean? Did the gospel writers, just, were they confused and so they heard things different ways? No, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, right? Jesus traveled around teaching. And so when he would travel around, often he would share a similar story. And in that story, he would make different applications. And so what's likely to be true is that Jesus shared the story in Matthew in one location and made some particular applications. But then in another place, he shared the story that we find in Luke. And he applied it in different ways. You see, it's very important when we study this morning that this story is about a king. This story is about a king. So, that is important because the gospel writers don't just take liberty in the way that they desire. But they record what Jesus has said. And Jesus has often told these stories multiple times and in multiple ways. As we continue, I want to ask you to stand, and we're going to read Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. We'll begin in verse 11 this morning. Remember that Jesus has a group of people traveling with him on his way to Jerusalem. Often this group is composed of disciples who are close, who are eager to hear what Jesus is saying. But then on the outskirts, kind of spying in on what Jesus is saying, are these Pharisees, these religious people. And they are also hearing these things. Verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here. And slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Father, please speak clearly to us through your word this morning. God, help us to know the significance of it. The significance of our relationship to you. Lord, whether we are faithful servants, whether we are nominal servants, or whether we are simply outright enemies... Lord give us clarity this morning that we might follow you, that we might turn from our sin and obey you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now let's consider the first part of the parable. Jesus introduces it, as he has so many parables, by giving us a sense of why He's telling it. It says in verse 11. They heard these things, being disciples and probably some Pharisees on the outside. And he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Now what's going to happen in Jerusalem? The crucifixion. He continues to want to explain what's going to happen in Jerusalem. His death. He wants to explain the significance of this. And because, again in verse 11, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This is something we've come back to multiple times. These that are there during the days of Jesus expected that when a Messiah came, he would overturn the Roman government which was ruling over them. He would give them military rule over all people. He would slaughter the Romans, the Gentiles, all of them, and he would maintain jewish rule jesus was to be a military messiah and they expected that this would come immediately and so jesus he's commenting on their expectation that the kingdom would return immediately now these people who surrounded him who are listening to this story probably even more than us have experienced difficulties They've experienced the, the unkindness that life can bring. Remember, Romans were ruling under, over them and many times hated them. One guy that we'll talk about in just a moment, a man named, a king, to be a king, named Archelaus. He was the son of Herod. And at one point, he had 3,000 Pharisees killed before his eyes. And so in many ways, these people that Jesus is speaking to have experienced just trial after trial. And what do they desire? that the kingdom of God would come, just like we do when we experience injustice. But the problem is that when we get really anxious over the kingdom of God coming, over God making all things right, we begin to kind of develop our own ideas about how the kingdom is to come, right? And so these who are surrounding Jesus have these ingrained ideas that the kingdom of God is going to come through a military rule, and it's going to come immediately. And so this is what Jesus is commenting on, this perception. So as Jesus tells this story... It's a very interesting story and it's sometimes difficult to make the parallels, but what we need to know beforehand is that somehow the story that Jesus is telling is to parallel with the kingdom of heaven, which is coming. So Jesus is going to tell a story about an earthly king, a a story that actually has its roots in real history. But in some way, this story will coincide with what God is doing and how how his kingdom is coming. Let's consider verse 12. He said, therefore, a noble man. A noble man was a person of noble birth. He was probably, and what we'll see, is born of a king. A noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now this story starts out very interesting. You see, during this time, again, they were ruled by Romans. But Rome was very far from Jerusalem, right? And so it was sometimes difficult for Rome, way over the sea, to be able to rule directly over Jerusalem and Israel. So what Rome would do is they would give authority to local rulers. Well, Herod had died. Herod had died, the great Herod. And so he had a son named Archelaus, who he would entrust with the kingdom. Now, Archelaus, being a new ruler, had to travel to Rome to be instated by the Roman emperor. And so probably around 4 BC, which is when we would also say that Jesus was born, Archelaus had to travel to Rome to be told and given authority by the Roman ruler that he could rule over Jerusalem. That he could rule over Israel. See how this coincides? It sounds very interesting. He leaves to go receive a kingdom. He's going to receive this particular kingdom. He's going to be told that he can rule over Israel. Now, look what it says next. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Another interesting parallel. When Archelaus went to Rome, a delegation followed after him to say, we really don't want Archelaus to rule over us. Remember, this is the guy who slayed 3,000 Pharisees. He was a harsh, brutal ruler. And so when he travels to Rome, there's a delegation who goes after him to say, we do not want this man to rule over us. Now, how could this setting that Jesus is building, that would have been familiar to the people during this time, correspond to Jesus in the heavenly kingdom? Well, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, Remember? Jesus is trying to teach them they expect that the kingdom will come immediately and what Jesus is saying through this parable is that the kingdom will not come immediately you see like Archelaus who went to receive a kingdom Jesus is going to die be raised and he is away receiving the kingdom that he will come back to You see, Jesus is making the parallel that the king will come back. The king will return. And like Archelaus had people who rebelled against him and didn't want people to rule, people didn't want him to rule over them, Jesus has people who do do not want him to rule over them. So, like the story of Archelaus, he goes to receive a kingdom. Jesus The kingdom will not come immediately, but he will go away for a while. But when he returns, he will be king. This is the story that is building. This is the parallel. Let's move on to the first servant. It says in verse 15 that he returns, the king returns. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implied in the story that the king did receive the kingdom. Even though there were those who argued and said, we don't want him to be king, the king received the kingdom. So when he returns, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16 The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. The first servants that we see are faithful servants. They're servants who invest what the master has given, and they make more on it it would have been very easy during this time to simply put money in the bank the money was safe and then to make more on that money now this is important when we get to the last servant and see that he has decided not to put the money in the bank it wasn't necessarily just a risky thing to do it was something that was easy to make money on during this time but these are faithful servants And in response to their faithful uh, service, the master tells them, well done, good servants. He gives them more. Now this is where we get to the application of this story for the Christian. Let me just say, this story is mostly to non-believers. This is where we'll see the the most verses is on the nominal servant. The servant who doesn't invest and isn't faithful. And so in these verses is where we see simply application for the Christian. Christian, the application for you is don't be a name-only servant. Don't be like the nominal servant. Are you making disciples of other people? Are you reinvesting what God has given? To get very specific... Husbands, families, are you keeping a good eye, making sure that things are on the right track in your family, that you're headed in the right direction, obeying the Lord in all things, growing in the Word? Husbands, specifically, does the, your family know the Word better because of you? Are you teaching them? Are you reinvesting? Students, are you persevering, pursuing Jesus, Are you reinvesting what God has given to you? Or are you pursuing sin? Are you being sidetracked by sin? The application for Christians is simply perseverance. And as we'll see in the parable, faithful servants are often entrusted with more. And so let me just ask you, this is the fruit of being a believer and being a faithful believer. Are you being entrusted with more things? Are people coming to you asking you, will you disciple me? You know what would be incredible? If so many people were asking you to disciple them that you ended up having to say no and pass them on and say, can, I know someone that can disciple you, but I, I can't. I'm not saying it's about you and that you are so good. But listen, if this is what the parable is teaching. If you're a faithful believer, God will continue to give you more to do. More to do. You will be investing and investing, and you will be being entrusted with more. And so is your plate full, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to serving the Lord? And if it's not, maybe you need to check your heart. Are you being a faithful steward, a faithful servant? This is what faithful servants do. They invest. They give their lives to making disciples. This isn't the story. He uses money, but the parallel is just service. As Matthew uses, we often talk about talents. That's the one we use the most. What talents has God given you? But it's very simple. Your time. Do you have anyone that you're just mentoring and pouring into? that you meet with on a daily, a weekly basis and just share in the Word with them. Read a book with them. Something that sharpens you both. This is how you are to be an intentional disciple. When's the last time you went on a mission trip? When's the last time you shared Christ with someone? It's being intentional. This is how you be faithful. So you need to ask these questions of yourself, Christian. Are you being faithful? Let's move on to the nominal servant. Again, this is where most of the verses are found in this parable. It's verses 20 through 26. It says, Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Now, (laughs) as I said before... The bank was a very pretty safe place to take your money. It was an easy place to get some return on your money. But this man says that he, was a, he, was, he put, kept the money laid away in a handkerchief, and it tells us the reason in verse 21. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now we need to consider this. It's easy to just run past it and say, well, maybe this man wasn't so nice after all. But if we've read the parable carefully, the way that this man, this king, responded to the other servants, does he seem like an unfair leader? As they've been faithful with their investment, he's given to them more to oversee. These men were well off financially they were doing well the king was empowering them and he was providing for them and so this steward what he says there's no basis for this in the text on the master being this way but also the way that he talks about what he did with the money he put it in a way away in a handkerchief this was more unsafe than the bank He simply takes a cloth and wraps it around around the piece of money where it could easily have been stolen. This was not a safe place to keep it. And so what it seems to be saying is that this man was probably just lazy. He was not wise. He did not make an investment. So he kept it laid away in a handkerchief. He was afraid. He says this was a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Again, there's no basis for what he says in the text. But listen to what the master says. Verse 22. He said, I will condemn you With your own words, you wicked servant. This is what he's going to do. He says, okay, I hear you. You say I'm a wicked wicked man. You say I'm not fair. But let me take what you've said. I'll give you that. And let's go from there. He says, I will condemn you with your own words. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. This is a question. So you knew this. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? If you knew that I was a severe man, then why didn't you use a little wisdom and a little sense and go ahead and invest that money so that you would be a little safer when I came back? Now you're in trouble. You see, what the man is telling us, what the king in the story is telling us, is that the excuse doesn't work. You see, first of all, the servant doesn't really know the king. And secondly, the excuse won't get him anywhere. So, when he thinks he has an out, this servant, an excuse, he really just brings judgment on himself. And this is the problem with our excuses. And this is what the text is to teach us. Our excuses don't excuse us before God. It doesn't matter what we say and what excuse we might have for not following Him, for not obeying Him. The excuse doesn't work. It reminds me and when I read this text of the blame game that we begin and learn to play as we're children. I bit Him because He hit me. Well. What's the problem with that? You can only control yourself, right? And so that excuse doesn't fly. You see, the problem with this guy is that even though he had a misunderstanding of who who this king was to be, he didn't even obey based on that misunderstanding. So, the excuse. Parents, it's important to help children learn to take care. Personal responsibility, right? They learn this by knowing they're accountable for their actions. Youth, you're, you're in a difficult stage of life, right? You're facing some of the greatest challenges and temptations that you might ever face. All people might be going in the direction of the world, but you're called to go in an entirely different direction. Listen. Even though the excuse everyone else is doing it may work with your parents or in other places, it doesn't work with God. It won't work with God. When you get there, everyone, everyone else was doing it. It was too tempting. It won't work with God. Our excuses will not work. Spouses, your spouse's behavior won't excuse you from your responsibility to be faithful, to love him or her, to seek their good. And then to all of us, you can't say you can't do missions or serve God in some area because God didn't give you that gifting or that desire. Do you think that will fly before God? You see, God-blaming happens when people try to run from God and they try to justify their behavior. And I don't want to be harsh here, but I want to make sure you're aware of some of the extreme excuses even Christians can fall into. God, you're not fair because you make people gay. You make me with a short temper. You make me this way. And so there's nothing else that I can do. These excuses won't fly. This guy makes an excuse. I, I thought you were this way, God. Recently, even in conversations with uh, non-believers, that it's the questions that they use to try to excuse themselves from God. Well, what about people who've never heard the gospel before? If he's that kind of God, then I don't want to serve him. That he would send people to hell? I can't serve that kind of God. Listen, cross point, all of you who are here. When you get to heaven, it will be between you and God. And it will be, how did you respond to what you knew? And to the gospel that was preached to you. And there will be no excuse from the judgment that will be served on you. None. None. So is there anything you're blaming on God? Trying to excuse yourself from something you should be doing. And maybe, maybe you're pointing the finger at others. And all the while, it's you that should be taking responsibility. Sometimes, as Christians, we can say, well, God hasn't moved my heart. We use a very spiritual language. God hasn't done this for me yet, giving me the grace to do it. Listen, if you've prayed, He's given you the grace, just do it. No excuses. There will be no excuses. So in this servant, we see a servant who's associated with the king, but he's only a nominal servant, a servant in name only. He has some distant relationship with him in which he appreciates the name and being associated with him, but he doesn't want to serve him and submit to him. The only thing that separates him from the enemies of the king that we will look at in a moment is just a title that he claims for himself. But the problem is that a title won't get you anywhere. It will not get you anywhere. And so I want to ask you a question. Are you a faithful servant or are you a servant in name only? Have you fully submitted your life, your obedience, every aspect of who you are to Jesus who is the king and who will return to judge? This parable is extremely evangelistic. This is what Jesus is concerned with in his last days. Do you see this? You will be in heaven or in hell, and it depends on your relationship to the king. Let's look at this last group, the enemies. Verse 27. One more point on on this last section, I apologize. I tell you in verse 26, Jesus says, in the parable, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This nominal servant has his Mina taken away and given to the one with 10. The people around cry out injustice, and then we receive this comment. What Jesus is telling us here is that if you haven't acted on it, then you don't have it. It's an illusion. This this servant never acted on what he had and on what he had been given. And so it's an illusion to think you really have it. The same thing is said in James. When James says, faith without works is dead. If I said I loved Katie, but yet I never acted like I loved Katie and was mean to Katie, never hung out with Katie, what would you say? Some of you would come up and slap me and say... Do it. That's right. If you say you love Jesus and you know Jesus, but you never obey him, you know what's true? You don't know him. You don't know him. Excuse my loudness this morning, but you must hear this. Do you hear this in your heart? That if you aren't obeying him, you don't know him. An enemy, verse 27. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, (laughs) there are probably not many here who would say they don't want Jesus to reign over them. You know, everybody in the South likes to, yeah, Jesus. We love Jesus. In the context we're looking at, Jesus is probably referring to the Pharisees. These who were not pleased with Jesus and his manner of bringing in God's kingdom. Remember, they want it to come immediately. They want this military ruler. But Jesus, instead of being a military ruler, has been a servant. A servant to sinners and those who are rejected. So, this text on judgment. These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There are two destinations for all of us, either heaven or hell. These who are enemies have said, we do not want him to reign over us. The parallel with the kingdom, those who reject Jesus and say, Jesus, we don't want you to reign over us. Here's the issue. God will only grant a portion of this request. You see, he will grant you separation from him. You want that? He'll give it to you, but it's still within his reign. You can't come from un, out from under God's reign. God reigns. That is the truth. It's the only truth. It's the ultimate truth. You can't get out from under it. So the question is, will you want to be with him or will you want to be against him? And those who want to be against him, he will say to you, yes, I will allow you to be separated from me. This is what hell is. Eternal separation from God. It's what enemies of God have asked for all along. To be separated from him. Now hear this quote from C.S. Lewis. Again we are speaking of hell in the sense that people have asked for their entire lives. We don't want to be for you or with you God. And C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. So, to those of you in this life who will not say to God, God, thy will be done. I will follow you with my whole heart, with all of, that I am. God will one day say to you, thy will be done. And he will allow you to be eternally separated from him in hell. In hell. All that are in hell, choose it. This is what these have done. They have said, don't let this man reign over us. And Jesus says, I'll let them be. And they are punished. And they are punished. So, the parable, it corresponds with Jesus. That Jesus is coming near to Jerusalem. I hope that as you look at this, you see that these are almost out. And when they are all snuffed out, you see what's in the middle? It's the cross. The cross. The cross that he will bear. We are close. We are close. And as we get close, Jesus is pounding more and more. Will you turn to me? Will you accept who I am? That I am the son of God who would go to a cross to bear your sin and bear your shame that you would know and have relationship eternally with God. If you're not a part of a church, if you're an unbeliever, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ Jesus. That's why we we are here. This is why we are here. The fundamental problem of all the world is sin. That each one of us individually have rebelled against God and live our lives in rebellion. And the only way we can know God is through the grace and mercy that he displays to us through Jesus. Do you know God? You can't do it by your works. They won't get you there. You're not good enough. But he will lavish his love on you. He will say to all that you have done, I forgive you and I love you. Christian, you who claim the name Christian, just like the servant did, are you a faithful servant? Are you in name only? It's just a title you bear. Your life will prove it. Everyone else can know. But do you know? We're going to pray. Again, the application for you, Christian, is that you would be faithful. Are you discipling? This is the mission of all the church. Make disciples and glorify the name of Jesus through all the world. Where do you need to be obedient? Where do you be, need to be a more faithful servant? But to those of you who are here who would say, I, I'm just a servant in name only. I don't know Jesus. I don't know His salvation. Would you admit that? All you do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and ask Him to save you. If you're sensing that already, that's God. And he's saying, respond to me. Will you respond? We'll give you time now, but we'll also give you, come after. But just come. At this point, your eternal destination is hell. The separation that you've asked of God all along. And he loves you enough that he would ask you to come. I'm going to ask Stephanie to come forward. If you'd like to stand, please stand. If you'd like to sit and pray, please pray. But respond in whichever way God would lead you to respond. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace that you display to us in Christ Jesus. That we who were far off would be drawn near by your grace. That you would lavish your love on those who are unworthy. Lord, we displayed no goodness in ourselves. It was not something beautiful about us, a cute personality, Father. But you loved us in all our disgrace when we were unlovable. Lord, help us as a church to be faithful servants, stewards of the grace that we have been given. Help us to be faithful in our marriages and in our home lives, Lord. To display your grace in every way that we live. Lord, our finances, our workplace, everywhere. And Lord, we pray that you would draw more to yourself. That we would be faithful and that you would entrust us with more. Lord, we beg these things of you. And we know that it's only by the Holy Spirit that it is done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.